we are all, those of us who have been with it from the beginning are very happy and excited by having all these writers here. Um, and I want to thank all of you for making this possible. Uh, tonight we're going to start with two readings and then it'll be followed hard upon the readings by a panel discussion about um, where has Latino literature come in the last 30 years and where is it going in the next 20 years or so. So it's sort of the past and the future with the present understood. Um, tonight, the first reader we'll have is Francisco Goldman, uh, who was born in Boston in 1954. Uh, he has, until very, very recently, lived in Mexico City for about a year and a half. He's just come to New York. Um, his first book, The Long Night of White Chickens, was published by Grove Atlantic in 1992, and An Ordinary Seaman will be out in 1997. Uh, he has been a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award, and he was the winner of the Sue Kaufman Award, which is given by the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Um, after Francisco reads, we will have Dagoberto Gill. Gill, who was born in Los Angeles in 1950, and since 1976 has lived in El Paso, Texas. Uh, Magic of Blood and the Last Known Residence of Mickey Acuna were both published by Grove Atlantic in 1993-94, respectively. And his new book is going to be called 20 Pounds. Um, he was the winner of the Penn Hemingway Award for First Fiction and the finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award and also a Guggenheim Award recipient. So first we'll have Francisco Goldman. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to read a fragment from my um, new novel, The Ordinary Seaman, as in sailor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I guess I should set this up a bit, because it's from rather late in the book. The uh, main part of this book is about a uh, freighter uh, abandoned in the Brooklyn waterfront. Can you hear me OK? Um, a crew of Central American seamen are hired um, by a shipping agent, mainly out of Nicaragua and Honduras, to come up and meet a ship in New York. They believe that they're going to, they have four-day seamen's transit visas. They believe they're just going to be here four days and sail. One of the odd things is out of the 15 guys on the crew, only two have ever been to sea before, the old waiter and the cook, and the rest are all these like 19 and 20 year old kids who have no experience whatsoever and have just hustled these jobs and have in fact been hired for their kind of lack of experience because it's a scam they've fallen into. And they get here and it, they are driven from Kennedy Airport to this beat up, rusted old freighter out in the Brooklyn waterfront, which is, as you probably know, an incredible wasteland that goes for miles of hundred-year-old docks and collapsed terminals and everything else. And they're told that uh, the ship needs repairs and that the ship will sail when the ship is fixed and when the ship is fixed, they'll be paid. 
and they go to work because they really don't know where they are or what they're doing, and they go to work on the ship, and eventually they're abandoned by the so-called Capitan and Primero, the first mate, who are kind of con men, yuppies, and eventually in the book you find out what the scam was and why it fell apart and why it didn't work, and they kind of end up living like Robinson Crusoe's, urban Robinson Crusoe's on the Brooklyn waterfront on this ship till finally they're discovered six months later. This fragment takes place uh, when they've been there four months and focuses on kind of the main character, Esteban. He's Nicaraguan. He's only 19 years old. He's a veteran of the uh, war in Nicaragua. This takes place in like 1989. You know, you can imagine they're all in rags and everything. I mean, this is important. They've been, you know, they haven't had, you know, their clothes are just totally worn out. They're filthy. Uh, he fought in a BLI, one of the irregular warfare battalions, the elite battalions. And he's, I guess you need to know for this chapter, he's very haunted by the death of his girlfriend in the war, who was a member of a, a Sandinista youth volunteer battalion. He was a draftee. Uh, and they were sort of like, sometimes sort of like lamb, innocent lambs thrown to the slaughter. And eventually, because they, uh, the, the Sandinistas, in fact, disbanded them because they were so ineffective. But of course, the Blees were terrific and won the war. Um, oh yeah, and so he's been thinking for months and months and months that he wants to get off the ship. And they're terrified. They don't know where they are. He thinks about escaping into the city, but what's the city? It's this, these skyscrapers off on the horizon. And this is the night he finally sneaks off the ship for the first time. And he's been thinking about it for months, you know, how am I going to get off the ship and what should I do? And they're illegal and they're terrified of the neighborhood and they don't know where they are and everything else. Esteban clasped a mooring line tied tightly between gypsy head and bits, synthetic rope thick as his arm, stands looking down at his hand closed over it through the vapor left by his shallow breathing in the chilly air. He can shimmy down it if he wants. It's how the rats got on board. Presumably how they'll leave when the temperature drops even more. Over the side, the rope tracks sl droops slackly, running midship towards the stern, down to the pier. Hijo puta, rope climbing is something he knows how to do. One of the first and only things taught to draftees in training before they were sent out to learn war by instinct. He walks to the foredeck. Here the length of rope is much longer but tauter all the way down, suspended over the gap of water opened by the prows curving away from the pier. This one. He walks all the way back to the makeshift tool shed between the smokestack and the engine room pit aft. Roughly hammered pine walls and door and a corrugated polyurethane roof. Inside it's pitch dark. Standing unsteadily on coils of rope and chain and winch cable and bundle tarps, he gropes along the loose shelves. A paint scraper. A knife for splicing wire. A short, heavy Merlin spike. He puts the knife in one pocket, the spike in another. Walking back, he sees Cabezon across the deck at the rail, pissing soundlessly into the air over the side. No jodas, he wants to get going. Maybe he can sneak past before Cabezon sees him. But Cabezon turns his big head and looks at him over his shoulder. Que onda? Pues nada. Cabezon is already zipping up. All their pisses are this brief. Their bladders are turning to rust. Esteban always finds himself pushing and pushing, trying to get a little more out, and yet he feels a swollen itch to piss all day long. 
Sometimes he dreams that he's urinating as steamy, steamily abundantly as an elephant. Esteban waits by the rail a while after Cabasson has plodded back to his cabin. Then he walks swiftly back to the foredeck, steps over the rail and hangs on in a crouch, looking down between his legs at the rope emerging from the mooring pipe and the black water underneath, and in one motion pushes off and grabs the rope to his chest as he falls and wraps his legs around it, finding a center of balance after a few scary lurches. He slowly shimmies backward down the mooring line, descending the wall of the hull, pausing several times to shove restless tools back down into his pockets. At the end, he turns himself around to pull himself up onto the pier. He stands looking up at the ship, lungs and hands tingling, trying to picture himself still up there, lying awake in his cabin near the viejo as he has night after night. If he climbs back up, will everything stay the same? It will be like cutting a person out of a group picture in a newspaper, one you can take out or put back in whenever you want. Now what? The whole unknown city, the pale gold skyscrapers on the horizon. What if by this time tomorrow I already have a job? Can I go looking for a job dressed like this? Where will I sleep? In that park with the horses. I'll find the United Nations and the Nicaraguans there, tell them I fought in a blee and ask them for clothes. But will they think I've done something wrong? Send me back? A white slice of moon hangs over the gravel and earth-molded water break, forming the harbor side of the cove. In between, the water seems almost motionless tonight, dimly sequined currents moving across it, licking pilings an airliner sinking slowly in the sky like a strip of bread through clear dark water. Someone else might come out on deck. He walks swiftly off the pier and around the grave elevator, grain elevator, and into the lot behind, and hesitates there as if at a confusing crossroads in the middle of nowhere. Puessy can go anywhere now. What will they say in the morning when they see he's, when they see he's gone and the ladder still up? But instead of into Brooklyn, his footsteps pull him towards the ocean. It isn't fear more like a self-protective yearning leading him this way. He doesn't want to lose what he feels in himself right now, wants to get to know it instead of taking the chance of squandering or ruining it, it in some disastrous adventure he hasn't thought through yet. The immense old shipping terminal of mouse gray wood, shaped like an airplane hangar, stands on a stretch of beach and tumbled pilings and rubble between the road and a field of high dry weeds. A tilting old dry-docked freighter stands silhouetted in its darkened grove of withered trees beyond. He crosses the field, a fried landscape of dry stalks and brittle silvery leaves. Towards the terminal, hears the faint tinkling of buoy bells out in the harbor night. A brambly tumbleweed suddenly lifts across his path like the ghost of a porcupine. Inside, the terminal feels as spacious and empty as a gutted cathedral with a floor made of sand a dizzying sensation of airy pitch darkness soaring up all around him. He hears the beatings of invisible wings and cooings high above, looks up through the dark at the muted glow of night sky through tatters in the roof, and he sits down right in the cool sand. It's as if a flood tide had carried the sand inside and receding left it smoothly and evenly distributed over the terminal floor. The solitude, the sudden fact of himself, of being a Steven Gaetan and all that he's lived through and kept pent up inside for so many months, he could almost weep from this bewilderment and wild mix of emotion he suddenly feels. He stares straight ahead like some campfire-stunned jungle animal at the edge of a clearing, through the terminal's immense pier gates at night sky over the blackened harbor. He lies back in the sand. It was raining softly in Kilali the first time he saw her, she and her sister, waiting out the outside the church door in the rain-misted glow from the light inside. 
She's sitting on the steps facing him and her sister standing at the edge of the doorway watching the Yankee Padre with the unpronounceable last name finishing up the evening mass. Across the street in an adobe-walled pool room lit by a single weak bulb, men in white cowboy hats leaned over their cue sticks. An old man on a white horse with long rickety legs lightly cantering down the dirt street and on into the dark leading out of town. Esteban and his friend Arturo were in uniform, AKs slung over their shoulders, the patch on their arms identifying them as belonging to one of the irregular warfare battalions, the Blees, Batallon Cesar Caceres. They'd spent the last three weeks moving through the mountains in a triangle between there and Wiwili and the Rio Coco, mostly in coordinated pursuit of a contra column, finally caught in a pincer, driven back across the border. His and another company were now bivouacked just outside the town, waiting for the battalion to reform there. He and Arturo weren't really looking for girls when they decided to take a walk into town, though of course they'd said they were. Kila Lee wasn't bound to offer much but awkward campesinas who wouldn't even be fun to talk to after the first few minutes, and though militarily secure, was supposed to be full of contra sympathizers anyway. But then they saw the girls in green fatigues in front of the church, and the ones sitting on the steps looked up as they approached, long black hair falling around her shoulders, and her luminously large eyes saw right into him with the swift, soft tumble of a twirled open lock, seemed to reach in and lay invisible soft hands around his heart. At first he thought she looked owlish, but then he realized she was beautiful. Her soft round face was beautiful, so melancholy and serious. And she met his gaze as if she knew him and wasn't at all surprised to see him. The other girl, curly and short-haired, lighter-skinned, hand-propped on one hip, buttocks swelling her fatigues, turned and looked, looked at them over her shoulder. He looked at the other one again. What was she doing here? He asked her that. Waiting to talk to the padre, she said. Why? He didn't have any special reason for asking, just couldn't think of anything else to say. He noticed that there was a piece of thread tied around her little finger, and that the thread led up to the unbuttoned opening in her shirt and disappeared into the triangle of softly swelling skin inside. She looked at the other girl and then back at him and shrugged. We have to talk to him, she said. Arturo butted in. Who are you with? Bon 7765, answered the other girl. What's that? asked Arturo. It's a Batallon Voluntario Juventud Sandinista from Lyon, she said. We're from Lyon. I didn't, I didn't think they still had those, said Arturo. They do, said the girl. Esteban's girl, she was already his girl, cupped a hand over her shirt between her breasts and looked down at her hand. What do you do? Coffee harvesting? Medical work? asked Arturo. No, we've been in the mountains, said the short-haired girl. Going after La Contra, Arturo said, Arturo said that as if that couldn't be what they'd been doing. <laughs> See, si, pues, to tell you the truth, they've been going after us. It's been more like that. They let women fight? See, si, bueno, except for us, it's all compañeros. I'm Arturo, this is Esteban. We're with a blee. And the girl standing said, I'm Amalia, and that's Marta. We're sisters. They sure seemed serious while joining a volunteer battalion. What did he expect? What's that thread, Marta? asked Esteban. He wanted her to lift her eyes and look at him again. But she only seemed to peer even more intently down at her own shirt front, just her nose protruding from the waterfall of hair over her face. Her hands nudged something up from inside her shirt, cupping over the open collar, and then she was holding a small squirrel in her hands, thread fastened around her rear leg. The squirrel had silky red fur and crouched tremblingly in her palms and then wrestled itself around so that its tail was raised towards a steven. She held the squirrel out to him, and he stepped forward and bent down and cupped his hands over hers and took the animal into his, 
Her tied finger crooked as she lifted her hand a little, following the thread. Ketal, said Esteban to the squirrel, feeling his voice quaver as if he felt exactly the same as the squirrel seemed to. He asked her where she'd found it. In the mountains, she said. Did you kill many contra? asked Arturo. No, not one, to tell you the truth, said Marta. After a moment, her eyes on Esteban's hands, her hands still raised as if offering it as a perch to a flying bird. But they killed, well, they killed a great many of us, said Amalia, her voice rising. The day before yesterday, they killed the compa leading us. We're here waiting for a new officer, supposedly. Esteban, lying on his back, watches the sky slowly lightening through the tattered terminal roof. He's been listening to their cooing all night, but now he can see mourning doves perched like mauve, bo mauve bowling pins on the rafters under the ruined circle, uh, under the ruined ceiling. Now and then one of the doves flies into the graying air, wings beating, circling under the roof before landing on another rafter. He kissed her for the first time that night, hours after the sisters went in and talked to the padre while he and Arturo waited outside. He held her tightly against him while she sobbed against his chest, soaking his shirt with salty tears and drool, the squirrel back, back inside her shirt, tucked between her breasts. By the end of that week, everyone in the battalion was calling him Ardia for that squirrel. Three nights in a row, she said, we set pickets out in the perimeter of our camp and found them in the morning with their throats slit, all stabbed up, mutilated. The third night they got Beto. Amalia and I had known Beto since oof, before primary school. He'd made the decision to join with us. And when he was told it was his turn to stand guard, he cried. He knew, but he did it. They scooped out his eyes as if with spoons. They have this instrument, Esteban. It's as if they can light up the jungle at night, see through trees. But they just joder, shout things at us so that we know they could see us, shoot off a few rounds. They don't try that mierda with us, he said finally. They're toys. They run from us. We chase them. They could have finished us off, she said, all of us, but they didn't. Instead, they just followed us around. They were playing with us. We were their toy. Later, she told them that if their officer had insisted on posting guards the fourth night, they were prepared to kill him themselves if they had to. But then that very day, out of nowhere, a bullet had smashed through the jungle, splintering branches and leaves and killed him, took away a piece of his head, and they'd left him there, hiked out to a road and walked all the way to Kilali. After a while, he gets up and walks toward the wide pier gates at the front of the terminal and sits down on the cracked timber frame looking at the double row of blackened barnacle-coated pier stumps extended into the pink-tinged expanse of flowing rough gray water. He can see the whole statue now, standing on her own island. Close to shore, the water is almost the same shade of green as the statue, and sudsy foamy, the bank a piled rubble of stone, driftwood, broken pier debris, a length of rotted yellow mooring line winding through it all like a giant princess's braid. The ring and buoys, lights glowing palely in the dawn, running a diminishing line across the harbor. Two long barges cut slowly in opposite directions across the buoys, the skyscrapers immensely walling one end of the harbor. A tugboat passes so closely he can hear the loud chugging of its engines and the water parting around it and see a man at the wheel behind greasy glass. He watches it plowing out towards the long bridge at the other end of the harbor. Out there, just beyond the bridge, waits a huge ship with an orange and black hull, a tanker probably. Gulls swooping and skimming the water with their grinning cartoon villain faces, wings out as a wire to coat hangers. He walks back through the terminal, early morning sunlight slanting at awry angles through the roof. What do the doves feed on? Mice? He imagines doves roasting on a spit over a fire on deck. Would it make his crewmates sick? He'd have to catch at least a dozen anyway. Bueno, 
He's eaten pan-fried hummingbirds, each no more a mouthful than a peanut inside a grease-soaked shell. Make a net and build some wings and float around up there snagging doves. Vos ni verga. Impossible. I'm just supposed to go up. Um, you know, I thought of reading a, um, something from this new novel, and then I thought of a couple new stories, and then I remembered where I was and what this is, and nobody's ever heard any of my stories here. So <laughs> kind of saved me. I can do it, you know, it's like the hit tunes, you know. <laughs> nobody's heard me do those, so I can do this. Um, I'm going to read a, a story from this, my collection, The Magic of Blood. Is, is this all right? Or am I? Um, it's a story about El Paso, Texas, where I'm from. And uh, I really don't think there's a lot I need to do to introduce it. I always think that I have to talk about the color of the place, which is very brown. And uh, it, it takes a different kind of eye to get used to the brown of the desert. And, um, and people think beauty is. Uh, Often, you know, when people think of nature, they think of green. Beauty is green. But beauty is brown, where I'm from. <clears throat> the story's called, <clears throat> excuse me, the story's called Romero's Shirt. Juan Romero, a man not unlike many in this country, has had jobs in factories, shops, and stores. He has painted houses, dug ditches, planted trees, hammered, sawed, bolted, snaked pipes, picked cotton and chile and pecans, each and all for wages. Along the way, he has married and raised his children, and several years ago, he finally arranged it so that his money might pay for the house he and his family live in. He is still more than 20 years away from being the owner. It is a modest house, even by El Paso standards. The building, in an adobe style, is made of stone which is painted white, though the paint is gradually chipping off or being absorbed by the rock. It has two bedrooms, a den which is used as another, a small dining area, a living room, a kitchen, one bathroom, and a garage which, someday, he plans to turn into another place to live. Although in a development facing a paved street and in a neighborhood, it has the appearance of being on almost half an acre. At the front is a garden of cactus, nopal, cotillo, and agave. And there are weeds that grow tall with yellow flowers which seed into thorn-hard burrs. The rest is dirt and rocks of various sizes, some of which have been lined up to form a narrow path out of the graded dirt, a walkway to the front porch, where, under a tile and one-by tongue-and-groove overhang, are a wooden chair and a love seat covered by an old bedspread, its legless frame on the red cement slab. Once the porch looked onto oak trees, two of them are dried-out stumps, the remaining one has a limb or two which can still produce leaves, but with so many amputations, its future is irreversible. Romero seldom runs water through a garden hose, though in the backyard some patchy grass can almost seem suburban, at least to him, when he does. Near the corner of his land in the front, next to the sidewalk, is a juniper shrub, his only bright green plant, and Romero does not want it to yellow and die, so he makes special efforts on its behalf washing off dust, keeping its leaves neatly pruned and shaped. These days, Romero calls himself a handyman. He does odd jobs, 
which is exactly how he advertises, no job too small, in the throwaway paper. He hangs wallpaper in doors, he paints, lays carpet, does just about anything someone will call him and ask him to do. It doesn't earn him much, and sometimes it's barely, barely enough, but he's his own boss, and he's had so many bad jobs over those other years, one's no, no more dependable, he's learned that this suits him. One time Romero did want more, and he'd believed that he could, he could have it simply through work, but no matter what, his, what he did, his children still had to be born at the county hospital. Even years later, it was there that his oldest son went for serious medical treatment because Romero couldn't afford the private hospitals. He tried not to worry about how he earned his money. In Mexico, where his parents were born and he spent much of his youth, so many things weren't available, and any work which allowed for food, clothes, and housing was to be honored. By the standards there, Romero lived well, except this was in Mexico, and even though there were those who did worse even here, there were many who did better and had more, and a young Romero too often felt ashamed by what he saw as his failure. But time passed, and he got older. As he saw it, he didn't live in poverty, and here, he finally came to realize, was where he was, where he and his family were going to stay. Life in El Paso was much like the land, hard, but one could make do with what was offered. Just as his parents had, Romero, had, Romero always thought it was a beautiful place for a home. Yet people he knew left to Houston, Dallas, Los Angeles, San Diego, Denver, Chicago, and came back for holidays with stories of high wages and acquisition. And more and more people crossed the river in rags, taking work, his work, at any price. Romero constantly had to discipline himself by remembering the past, how his parents lived. He had to teach himself to appreciate what he did have. His car, for example, he'd kept up since his early 20s. He'd had it painted three times in that period, and he worked on it so devotedly that even now was as, as, is, it was as in good a condition as almost any car could be. For his children, he tried to offer more, an assortment of clothes for his daughter, lots of toys for his sons. He denied his wife nothing, but she was a woman who asked for little. For himself, it was much less. He owned some work clothes and t-shirts necessary for his jobs, as well as a set of good enough, he thought, shirts he'd had since before the car. He kept up a nice pair of custom boots, and in a closet hung a pair of slacks for a wedding or baptism or important mass. He owned two jackets, a leather one from Mexico and a warm nylon one for cold work days. He owned a wool plaid Pendleton shirt, his favorite piece of clothing, which he bought right after the car and before his marriage because it really was good looking be besides being functional. He wore it anywhere and everywhere with confidence that its quality would, would always be in style and appropriate. The border was less than two miles be below Romero's home, and he could see down the dirt street which ran, ran alongside his property, the desert and mountains of Mexico. The street was one of the few in the city which hadn't yet been paved. Romero liked it that way despite the runoff problems when heavy rains passed by, as they had the day before this one. A night wind had blown hard behind the rain, and the air was so clean he could, he could easily see buildings in Juarez. It was sunny, but a breeze told him to put on his favorite shirt before he pulled the car up alongside the house and dragged over the garden hose to wash it, which is something else he still enjoyed doing as much as anything. He was organized, had a special bucket, a special sponge, and he used warm water from the kitchen sink. When he started soaping the car, he worried about getting his shirt sleeves wet, 
And once he was moving around, he decided a t-shirt would keep him warm enough. So he took off the wool shirt and draped it conspicuously over the juniper near him at the corner of his property. He thought that if he couldn't help but see it, he couldn't forget it. And forgetting something outside was losing it. He lived near a school, and teenagers passed all the time. And also there was regular foot traffic. Many people walked the sidewalk in front of his house, many who had no work. After the car was washed, Romero went inside and brought out the car wax. Waxing his car was another thing he still liked to do, especially in a weekday like this one when he was by himself, when no one in his family was home. He could work faster, but he took his time, spreading with a damp cloth, waiting, then wiping off the crust with a dry cloth. The exterior done, he went inside the car and waxed the dash, picked up some trash on the floorboard, cleaned out the glove compartment. Then he went in for some pliers he kept in a toolbox in the garage, returned and began to wire up the rear license plate, which had lost a nut, a nut and bolt and was hanging awkwardly. As he did this, he thought of the other things he might do when he was finished, like prune the juniper, except his old shears had broken and he hadn't found another used pair because he wouldn't buy them new. An old man walked up to him carrying a garden rake, a hoe, and some shears. He asked Romero if there was some yard work needed to be done. After spring, tall weeds grew in many yards, but it seemed a dumb question this time of year, particularly since there was obviously so little ever to be done in Romero's yard. But Romero listened to the old man. There were still a few weeds over there, and he could, take the, he could rake the dirt so it'd, even, it'd be even and level. He could clip that shrub, and probably there was something in the back if he were to look. Romero was usually brusque with requests such as these, but he found the old man unique and likable, and he listened and finally asked how much he would want for all of those tasks. The old man thought as quickly as he spoke and threw out a number, 10. Romero repeated the number, questioning, and, and the old man backed up, saying, well, eight, seven. Romero asked if that was for everything. Yes, sir, the old man said, excited that he'd seemed to catch a customer. Romero asked if he would cut the juniper for $3. The old man kept his eyes on the evergreen, disappointed for a second, then thought better of it. Okay, okay, he said, but I've been walking all day. You'll give me lunch? The old man rubbed his striped cotton shirt at his stomach. Romero liked the old man and agreed to it. He told him how he should follow the shape, which was already there, to cut it evenly, to take a few inches off all of it, just like a haircut. Then Romero went inside, scrambled enough eggs and chile and cheese for both of them, and rolled it all in some tortillas. He brought out a beer. The old man was clearly grateful, but since his gratitude was keeping his, the work from getting done, he, he might talk an hour about his little ranch in Mexico, about his little turkeys and his pig. Romero excused himself and went inside. The old man thanked Romero for the food, and as soon as he was finished with the beer, went after the work sincerely. With dull shears, he sharpened them, so to speak, against a rock wall. The old man snipped garishly, hopping and jumping around the bush, around and around. It gave Romero such great pleasure to watch that this was all he did from his window. The work didn't take long, so as the old man was raking up the clippings, Romero brought out a $5 bill. He felt that the old man's dancing around that bush in those baggy old checkered pants was more inspiring than religion, and a couple of extra dollars was a cheap price to see old eyes whiten like a boy's. The old man was so pleased that he invited Romero to that little ranch of his in Mexico, where he was sure they could share some aguardiente, 
Or maybe Romero could buy a turkey from him. They were skinny, but they could be fattened. But in any case, they could enjoy a bottle of tequila together with some sweet lemons. The happy old man swore he would come back no matter what, for he could do many things for Romero at his beautiful home. He swore he would return, maybe in a week or two, for surely there was work that needed to be done in the backyard. Romero wasn't used to feeling so virtuous. He so often was disappointed, so often dwelled on the difficulties of life, that he had become hard, guarding against compassion and generosity. So much so that he'd even become spare with his words, even with his family. His wife whispered to the children that this was because he was tired, and since it wasn't untrue, he accepted it as the explanation too. It spared him that worry, and from having to discuss why he liked working weekends and taking a day off during the week like this one. But now an old man had made Romero wish his family were there with him so he could give as much more to them so he could watch their spin-around dances. He'd miss so many, and Romero swore he would take them all into Juarez that night for dinner. He might even convince them to take a day or maybe two for a drive to his uncle's house in Chihuahua instead because he'd promised that so many years ago. So long ago, they probably thought about somewhere else by now, like San Diego or Los Angeles. Then he'd take them there. They'd go for a week, spend whatever it took. No expense could be so great. And if happiness was as easy as some tacos and a $5 bill, then how stupid it had been of him to not have offered it all this time. Romero felt so good, felt such relief, he napped on the couch. When he woke up, he immediately remembered his shirt that it was already gone before the old man had even arrived. He remembered that they'd walked around the juniper before it was cut. Nevertheless, the possibility that the old man took it wouldn't leave Romero's mind. Since he'd never believed in letting down, giving in to someone like that old man, the whole experience became suspect. Maybe it was part of some ruse which ended with the old man taking his shirt, some food, money. This was how Romero thought. Though he held out a hope that he'd left it somewhere else, that it was a lapse of memory on his part, he went outside, inside, looked everywhere twice, then one more time after that, his cynicism had flowered, colorful and bitter. <clears throat> Understand that it was his favorite shirt, that he'd never thought of replacing it, and that its loss was all Romero could, think it, could keep his mind on, though he knew very well it wasn't a son or a daughter or a wife, or a mother, or father, not a disaster of any kind. It was a simple shirt, and the true value of things not very much to lose. But understand also that Romero was a good man who tried to do what was right, and would harm no one willfully. Understand that Romero was a man who had taught himself to not care, to not want, to not desire for so long that he'd lost many words, avoided many people, kept to himself alone almost always, even when his wife gave him his meals. Understand that it was his favorite shirt, and though, no, and though no more than that, for him it was no less. Then understand how he felt like a fool paying that old man who he considered might have even taken it, like a fool for feeling so friendly and generous, happy when the shirt was already gone, like a fool for having those and these thoughts for the love of a wool shirt, like a fool for not being able to stop thinking them all, but especially the one reminding him that this was what he had always believed in, that loss was what he was most prepared for. 
And so then you might understand why he began to stare out the window of his home, waiting for someone to walk by absently with it on, for the thief to pass by careless. He kept a watch out the window as each of his children came in, then his wife. He told them only what had happened, and as always, they left him alone. He stared out that window onto the dirt street, past the ocotillos and nopales and agaves, the junipers and oaks and mulberries in front of other homes of brick or stone, painted or not, past them to the buildings in Juarez, and he watched the horizon darken and the sky light up with the moon and stars, and the land spread with shimmering lights so bright in the dark blot of night. He heard dog, dogs barking until another might bark farther away, and then another back and forth like that. The small rectangles and squares of their fences plotted out distinctly in his mind's eye as his lids closed. Then he heard a gust of wind bend around his house, and then came the train, the metal rhythm getting closer until it was as close as it could be, the steel pounding the earth like a beating heart until it diminished and then faded away and then left the air to silence, to its quiet and dark, so still it was like death or rest, sleep, until he could hear a grackle and then another gust of wind and then finally a car. He looked in on his daughter, still so young, so beautiful, becoming a woman who would leave that bed for another, his sons still boys when they were asleep, who dreamed like men when they were awake, and his wife, still young in his eyes in the morning shadows of their bed. Romero went outside. The juniper had been cut just as he'd wanted it. He got cold, and he came back in and went to the bed and blankets his wife kept so clean, so neatly arranged as she slept under them without him, and he lay down beside her. I want to thank you for having me, and thank you for coming. Thank you for those wonderful readings. Uh, we will now have our panel discussion, which will be moderated by Anna Castillo, who um, gave us an equally wonderful reading last night from her forthcoming collection of short stories, which will be out in the fall, called Lover Boy. Um, Anna will, and I just also want to remind you that Anna Castillo, together with Martina Espada, have curated these three days of six readings and two panel discussions and school visits and other forms of gaiety, I hope. So um, Anna will introduce the panelists and the subject of this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Buenas noches. I'd like to thank Pan American again for uh, for sponsoring this uh, this weekend of uh, of uh, Latino writers, local and also from around the country, and also the discussion discussions we're having about Latino literature, Latina literature. 
what we're going to do this evening um, is uh, talk about the past, as uh, uh, Karen said, the past, present, and the future of Latino literature. What I would like to do is, is introduce each of our writers. Uh, to my right, I have representatives of Latino literature of the last generation, the last 20, 30 years. Of course, writers are not dancers, and we don't expect anyone to retire. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be writing just as, just as hard and, and as vibrantly as they have been for some time now in the future. But what I would like to do is ask each one to, as I introduce them, to tell us not about his and her uh, personal experience so much, but their feelings of the state of Latino literature in the last 20 and 30 years, as is the case with our first uh, panelist, Victor Hernandez Cruz, who was born in Puerto Rico in 1949, where he now resides. He's come in for this, especially to, uh, to visit with us. He published his first book, Snaps, at age 19. His other books include Mainland, Tropicalization, Bilingual Holes, and Rhythm, Content, and Flavor, and most recently, Red Beans. His upcoming book, Panoramas, will be published by Coffee House Press in 1997. So my first question for Victor is, tell us about Latino literature 30 years ago, and if, in fact, he, he thought of something called Latino literature then. Well, U.S. Latino literature 30 years ago was almost not around, un unless we think of the... Uh, the old uh, Southwest uh, Mexican writers, um, um, Villarreal, the, the author of Pocho back in 1947. Uh, some of the earlier Latino writers that were here in New York, uh, turn of the century. This has always been a great center for, um, uh, for instance, Caribbean exiles. Not far from here, there used to be a place called Casa Galicia on which very corner the great uh, Cuban poet Jose Martí first met the great Nicaraguan modernist poet uh, Rubén Darío, and Jose Martí embraced them and called them hijo, because of course Jose Martí was slightly older than Rubén uh, uh, Darío. Uh, if we think of uh, the um, a writer of the magnitude of um, uh, in North American poetry of William Carlos Williams. But Carlos, of course, um, is what brings him home to Puerto Rican since he was half Puerto Rican. His mother, Elena Hobeb, from the upper classes of Maya West, migrated to a town called Rutherford, uh, New Jersey, and brought up um, William Carlos Williams eating rice and beans and listening to her uh, Puerto Rican Jefranes and <coughs> Proverbs, and he went out to become a major, major North American poet, friend of T.S. Uh, Eliot and a friend of Pound. But he was the most American and the most grounded in the American language. He was the most uh, present here. T.S. Eliot, of course, abandoned the country, went on to um, England. Pound variously went crazy, variously went back to a medieval stances, took the time machine somewhere else. <laughs> and um, uh, William, Carlos Williams grew up listening to his mother's fragmented English. 
you know, uh, and these fragmented, uh, this bilingualism, which is like Cubist paintings in sound, and made poetry. And actually, he published, um, if we go back to 1917, he published a book called Al Que Quiere, which is a, a book of poems with a Spanish title. And some of the poems have Spanish titles, and the poems are in um, English. He also published a small, very experimental uh, prose poetry work called Cora in Hell in 1921, in which we could actually say that is the beginning of what is called Spanglish literature, since there's a lot of Spanglish in there. He throws in a lot of tropical words, words of uh, Caribbean fruits and um, outright Spanish lines. And his mother's uh, presence, his mother's language, his own bilingualism is constantly present in not only that book, but in other uh, of his works. The poet, uh, New York City, Puerto Rican poet, Julio Marsang, has just written an interesting um, uh, text on that situation of William Carlos Williams called The Spanish-American Roots of William Carlos Williams. If we go back also to some of the um, Puerto Rican writers that were always present here in New York, we know that uh, the great woman, uh, a poet of Puerto Rico, Julia de Burgos, wrote poetry in these streets, wrote her poetry in Spanish, and also produced some poetry um, in English. Uh, that, I don't know, I haven't seen those published yet, but they say that she also produced quite a, a bit of English language poetry here in New York. Uh, the novelist and short story writer Pedro Juan Soto uh, was also present here in New York. And that's a very interesting situation because it's a group of uh, Puerto Rican writers who wrote in Spanish about the New York City uh, uh, experience, the experiences of uh, migration, the, the, the experience of the Puerto Rican community here, the Puerto Rican diaspora, but it directly into the Spanish language. And of course, that is part of Puerto Rican literature. I think they all have been translated book of short stories, known called Spics, uh, about Spanish Harlem in 1956. Uh, which we know very well from uh, our experience and sensations of jazz, is something which also permits uh, all of uh, North American literature, not just in jazz, but in food, and now, very importantly, in literary culture and literary creativity. And that's something that's not going to go away because it's uh, definitely um, here to stay. And uh, if you read... Um, North American writers like uh, uh, the popular uh, detective story writer like Elmore Leonard. I mean, if you see his stuff, his material is full of Spanish words. Robert Stone's novel is definitely full of, of Latino tinges and Spanish words. Uh, other writers, you can see it. You can see it on TV, part of the uh, permanent place in the language of North America. And we all produce uh, work from that tinge. And I very much would like that tinge um, to be nourished and to continue on into the future and be a permanent part of the Norte American experience that we are all feeling and living. To the left of Victor, gracias Victor, we have Dolores Prida, who was born in Cuba in 1943. <coughs> 
and has lived in New York City since 1961. A collection of, her fi of five of her plays, Beautiful Senoritas and other plays, was published by Arte Publico Press in 1991. Since Dolores is a playwright, and I think the only one we, we have, I'm not sure, today on the panel, I would like to find out uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, when you decided to become a playwright, were, were there any uh, models for you, Latina or Latino playwrights that you, that, that made you think, well, maybe, maybe it can happen for me, because I know it's been a, a, a long haul for you. Okay, thank you. Um, first, I want to say that yesterday I was told I would be talking about the future. And then I think Anna read my biography and saw my age and put me back in the past. <laughs> but yes, I was there 30 years ago. <laughs> I was there 30 years ago, not only in the theater. The theater would be um, 20 years that I began writing for the theater. But I began as a poet uh, with a publishing a magazine called La Nueva Sangre. Now, the only thing we didn't call it Latino literature then, there were there have been uh, writers here for a long time writing in Spanish. La Nueva Sangre was in Spanish, and it was about everything. So maybe later on we can discuss a little bit really what we mean by Latino literature. And we could spend like three days just talking about that. <coughs> uh, but no, I had no models. Uh, uh, back in late 60s, a lot of the Latino theater groups were established and they began doing plays in Spanish uh, from Latin American countries. It was a little later that we began writing about ourselves and that's when things took off and that's what I call Latino literature. Uh, the literature, the new American literature that reflects the experiences of uh, people of Hispanic or Latin American descent. Um, I wrote my first play because it wasn't there. I wasn't seeing myself on a stage. And, and that's what, um, uh, that was the inspiration for many o of these other groups. And I also think that as, as we discuss where we're going, uh, it's very important to talk about how many of, of us, I don't know about the others, what their experience is, but I think I'm here today because of help. Uh, I think it'd be important to talk about <coughs> public assistance to the arts. Uh, if it weren't for the New York State Council on the Arts, probably I wouldn't be sitting here today. And as we talk about the future, that is disappearing. The National Endowment for the Arts is about to disappear. And the new Doloreses and the new Victors and the new Rubens that want to start and want to write a play and have it put on by a small group won't have that money there. So that was a big bust for us to have access to funds that were very, um, they were small, but it helped us to realize a dream, to get going, to develop an audience, to start exploring our voices, what we wanted to say, and to have our community see themselves reflected on a stage. I have to say, tell this anecdote. I was this morning at, uh, in Brooklyn, and I thank Penn for sending me to Bushwick this morning. Uh, I was speaking to a high school group that they have gone to see my play Botanica and they have, they, they have been studying my, my plays. It's a creative writing class. So I always, and I told them the story of why it's so important to write our own stories. And I live in East Harlem and there is this old Italian deli that for a long time had this huge handwritten sign on the window that says, we make heroes. So. <laughs> I pass by there every day 
and that sign kept tempting me <coughs> and tempting me. <laughs> so one day I walked into the deli and tell the man, make me a hero. <laughs> and he gave me a sandwich. <laughs> which goes to show that if you want to be a hero, you have to make yourself into one. Otherwise, you have to settle for meatballs. And that's what we do, we make heroes. Thank you for the moment. Gracias. And we are going to ask you about the future of Latino okay. playwriting. The third person uh, immediately to my right that we're um, talking to this evening about uh, literature in the last 20 years is Ruben Martinez who comes from Mexican, Salvadoran, and American background. His book, The Other Side, Notes from the New LA, Mexico City, and Beyond, was published by Vintage in 1993. Ruben Martinez is an essay, essayist and a journalist, and I think I would like to also pose the same question for you uh, in, in becoming a journalist. How, how, did it, how did you see it? Was there a space for you there? Um, as I think for many Latino writers of my generation. And I, by the way, in, t in terms of talking about generations, it's, it's not so cut and dried, I think. Um, there is a 60s and 70s generation, I think, and then there's kind of like a quasi 70s, 80s, but it's not very well defined. I'm 33, and on this particular panel, I'm straight in between uh, Willie and Juno. If we're going to talk about age, I know, leave. I mean, you know, <laughs> so I don't know about generations. I think what I was about to say, actually, to address the whole thing about generations, is that I think we all have a lot more in common generation-wise than many people might think, because I think a lot of the themes and aesthetics that we've been dealing with and obstacles we've been dealing with are recycled over and over again. I think every generation has basically faced the same set of issues, maybe with different languages and musics, but we keep on coming up, up against the same obstacles. I was the first Latino journalist to write at the LA Weekly newspaper, uh, an alternative newspaper, the equivalent of the Village Voice uh, in Los Angeles on the West Coast. Um, in this, you know, it has to be said that the alternative uh, newspaper scene in the United States, which began with The Voice in the 50s, um, wasn't much better than the mainstream. Uh, what is known as the alternative newspaper uh, industry in the United States actually has a worse record of minority representation than the quote-unquote mainstream newspapers. The Association of Alternative Newspapers each year compiles, you know, the rates of minority hiring. Uh, and I, the last statistic I heard a couple of years ago was about an 8% minority hire rate in alternative newspapers, quote-unquote left, progressive newspapers. Uh, whereas in the mainstream world, uh, the rate is about 15 or 16 percent. In other words, the LA Times, which minority activists like to decry as being, you know, the, the white establishment and so forth and so on, uh, actually does a much better job than places like The Voice or The Weekly or The Chicago Reader. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about mainstream and alternative, um, I don't know where we are, we're somewhere else. Um, and yet, over the last few years, some of us have gotten into some of the alternative spaces. Some of us have gotten into some of the mainstream spaces. But I don't think we've really finished um, 
resolving the questions that have arisen. If the question here is really about where we've been for the last 20, 30 years, um, and what our antecedents have been, where we're at now, where we're going, I see, like I've said, a cyclical uh, succession of, of generations that are kind of like going over the same issues. Victor um, is a poet who I admire tremendously and who together with Juan Felipe Herrera in the 1970s uh, was working on a tremendous project, a cross-coast project, we could say, a Chicano-Riqueño project, we could say. Uh, that was known as kind of like, I suppose, the tropicalization movement of the 1970s, which is the first place that I identified that I could relate to as a writer, um, because it wasn't just one specific um, culture, let's say, or one specific language. Um, Chicanos and, and Puerto Ricanos and others in San Francisco in the 1970s, San Francisco not being known for its tropical clime, let's say, <laughs> right, uh, all of a sudden snaps you know, to a salsa Latin jazz history, recalling Mongo Santa Maria in the late 50s, and Willy Bobo in the 60s, and se prende pues, you know? Now that, to me, was an early sign of what Latino literature really is, which is a mestizo space, a space where all kinds of musics and styles are colliding, and where no one uh, content, no one politic, uh, can be determined, you know. There are many, many messages. There are many contents and many styles. And tropicalization was, was, a, was an early, I think, sign of this new mestizo voice, this mestizo voice in which we were speaking in many tongues at once. Another early sign, I think, for us in the 1970s was also the pioneering uh, Chicano performance slash literary troupe, ASCO, on the West Coast. ASCO meaning nausea. Uh, and which christened itself as a performance and literary group the night that uh, Willie Heron, I believe, and Gronk and Harry Gamboa and others, uh, Patsy Valdez, I believe, was with them at the time, uh, went on a nocturnal uh, early before we knew what tagging was, you know, a tagging mission, and went to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, which had said to them, in response to their petition to have a show, that Chicanos do not make art, they spray painted Asco across the doors of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and that was the beginning of ASCO, which was a conceptual art uh, Chicano effort, which uh, was as much uh, a barrio aesthetic as it was Joseph Boyce, for that matter. Uh, it was, once again, a tremendous syncretic space where a lot of different styles were informing this new young voice, which had, of course, very specific political concerns, but it was doing it in a very multifaceted way. If we jump leap forward to the 80s, which is where I start writing, um, I'm Salvadoran, I'm Mexican. Um, one thing that I did notice that was kind of missing um, uh, was somewhere I could go to to feel like, yo, well, I'm Central American here, where's the Salvadoran writers community, you know? Um, well, there really wasn't one, but it started forming in earnest in proportion to the crisis in Central America at the time. It was an exile literature then. Today, it's no longer an exile literature. If you go to Washington, D.C., to Mount Pleasant, you can hear Kike Aviles read his poetry. If you go to uh, L.A., you hear Francisco Rivera read his poetry. It's no longer an exile literature. It's an American literature. It's a continental literature. It's a mestizo literature, a product of all the movement up and down the continent that our communities have been doing 
not just in the last 10 years. You know, the last 10 years we talk about immigration, immigration, immigration. You know, Puerto Ricanos have been coming to New York for how long? My great aunt from El Salvador might have been the first Salvadoreña to come to, to LA in 1936. Okay? And of course, many of us were already in the Southwest at the time of 1848 and the war. In other words, it's a literature <laughs> that is here, it is part of this country. Uh, it is not the other, it is not the exile. Rather, it is at the center, and it needs to be recognized as such. And I think it's a tremendous sign of what we talk about in America sometimes in old terms is the melting pot, which I prefer to say as part of the process of mestizaje in this country, which is to say that is an extremely complex literature made up of all our different histories together and that it cannot be pinpointed. So if anyone says there's one Latino voice or one Chicano voice, um, I don't see how that's possible. Rather, I think we're the coming together of many different voices at once, a cacophony, if you will. Gracias. We're going to have a, a cast change right now. Uh, Victor Hernandez Cruz has to leave us. He has another commitment here this evening. And so we say gracias y adios. He's reading tomorrow. I should check the program if you want to hear uh, Victor's reading. Uh, and we're bringing up Miguel Argarín who probably doesn't need an introduction no. in, in New York. Because you don't know, he's Puerto Rican, lives in New York City. He's the author of eight poetry collections. He is the daddy of the New York Rican Poets Cafe. And we're going to continue with our panel, but we'll ask Miguel to jump in when we get, um, when we hear from everybody. And, she, and he's older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I can see we've touched the sensitive. A sensitive note here. Okay, to my left, gracias Miguel for coming and joining us. To my left is Luida Marisa Perez, a black Dominican, and lives in New York City. Her first novel, Geographies of Home, will be published by Viking in 1997. This is her, I would like to know about uh, her working on a novel. This is something new maybe for some writers been writing for 20 years to be writing your first novel with a contract, not on your life, but on, on the book. And uh, maybe she can uh, share some of that with some of those feelings with us. This is uh, on my left-hand side. Again, we have the uh, writers who are taking the le uh, Latino literature into the next generation. Okay. I think little by little, publishing houses are realizing that Latino or Asian Native American people of color writers are not a special interest group that um, people of color do buy books, but more important than that, that the general American public reads all types of literature and that's being proven by writers like, you know, Toni Morrison, Julia Alvarez, Sandra Cisneros, um, Terry McMillan, and um, that they're realize, starting to realize that we're a pretty diverse group. And um, I'm hoping that what eventually happens is that when we go to publishing houses that they don't say, oh, we already have one of you or we'll take you on because we need one of you, but that they will realize that, um, <laughs> that, they, that they will realize that Latino writers can write about anything, I mean, be it immigration, racism, romance, science fiction, horror, any topic. Yes, we may write, um, 
about our personal experiences or fantasy or anything and that we are writers and, and that literature is about the soul basically and it can apply to anybody. Just like Toni Morrison influences me and people all over the United States read her that we're not a special interest group and um, I think it is happening. Slowly you said I'm writing with a contract and yes it does feel very wonderful to write with a contract and I have to thank the writers who went before me and about Latino literature, um, I'm going to give another anecdote. A couple of weeks ago, I had my windows changed in my apartment, and the guys changing my windows were Dominican. And they were there for a couple of hours, and after about an hour and a half, you know, they were talking in Spanish and talking about the DR and everything. And I say, oh, so you're from the Dominican Republic? And they say, yes, and I say, so am I. And they look at me and they say, I thought you were black. And I said, well, I am. We come in all different colors. And these were Dominican writers. I mean, Dominican um, people. <laughs> and um, No doubt. So as a black Dominican, yes, I am Latina, but I am also a black writer, a woman writer, a Latina writer. And um, we... <laughs> and... Um, I mean, we're Asians, we're, there are Dominican Asians, we're Indians, we're black, and I just hope that the publishing world and the um, reading audience starts realizing that and not expecting us to write a certain type of book. You know, I don't want to write about my mother's rice and beans. I have more to say about that. So, and I think that's about all I'll say for now. Which is a good point, and, and I'd like to add that because this was brought up last night, is that obviously all the writers that have come and participated the, this evening, last night, tomorrow, uh, they are, of course, uh, many things, especially they are writers and identify as writers, uh, and I'm sure they feel at different times very strongly about their identities in, in different contexts, and, and this, this weekend is only one of many things that everyone is, including be, being a writer. Um, Juno Diaz sits to the left of Maritza, and he is also Dominican. He was born in 1968. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. His first book, Drown, uh, will be published by Riverhead later this year. And this is also uh, uh, Juno, Juno's first book, and he's being published by a mainstream publisher. More importantly, I'm wondering what you, th you are thinking about the comments that have been made on our right-hand side. How did you see yourself at this point, uh, starting out and publishing your first book of short stories, uh, in view, was there any influence that you that have have you um, probably uh, read, been aware of some of the early journals, early books? Was that an influence? And did that, unlike maybe with Dolores, who said she had no models, did that tell you, well, maybe I can do it? Hmm. I think. Um I think that's sort of a, I mean, that's a, that's one of those difficult questions because I, I mean, I guess I'm like a lot of people, I mean, a lot of the Latinos, specifically like poor Latinos who are geographically isolated, um, you tend not to have much access to um, a lot of the printed work of your people, whether they're Latino or black, because I noticed like at this half, a lot of us, um, and you know, a lot of us 
are really strongly committed to the fact that we're part of the African diaspora and like how we're connected to that and how we're connected to the larger, you know, black writing, African-American writing in this country. So I felt like actually it was strange because when I was, um, when I was reading, I was reading a lot of um, black writers and I came into the Latino writers later than almost, um, like they were, um, I came into them when I was in like halfway through college, like I think I was a sophomore. And the person, of course, that I found was C.D. Thomas. And I think that um, a spectacular, like, I mean, it's a spectacular place, a spectacular bridge to start thinking about your own writing. Because, I mean, you know, Down These Mean Streets is the book that I read. And it's one of those books that's, like, problematic. But it's also um, really wonderful in the way it breaks down the relationships between black and Latinos and between the different colors, I mean, the colorism in Latino community. And... I think it's something that uh, Marisa was talking about was there's so much stuff that happens inside of our communities. So, I mean, I feel like I came to it really late and I was more mostly drawing off of um, the very community that I was raised in for a lot of the oral traditions. I mean, a lot of my work is really like oral. Like I just, I would just be telling a story back. And I think that um, lately I've been reading a lot more of the Latino writers, the, um, you know, the greats that have come before, like the people who really, you know, put their head down and like, you know, busted their ass, you know, the 60s and 70s. So there's some writers who were recent who I got who were incredible inspirations. Like I think Sandra Cisneros is one that is a remarkable inspiration for anyone to read. I mean, when I first, Sandra, when I first found Sandra Cisneros' book, it was like, you know, I mean, for me, it was just some other shit. I just was really, I don't know, I really enjoyed it. But I guess as far as the future, I mean, thinking about like, the future of Latino writing and how I fit into it and you know how I work myself into this generational thing. I sort of, I've been really interested in the idea of community, like what we mean when we talk about like I'm from this community, like what our relationship to it. There was a, a conference a couple weeks back which I didn't get to attend but I read a lot of material on it and I spoke to people about it and it was the, um, the African American Writers, Writers Conference at Medgar Evers College. I don't know if some of you all went to that and it was like a, there was this weird thing going on at that conference where they were talking about um, whether there was a renaissance in black writing. Like, is there a renaissance in African-American literature? And um, some people were like, yeah, there is. Some people were like, no. And of course, there was a lot of nuances. And I mean, for me, as a, you know, a Dominican writer, I feel very connected <coughs> to the black community. I grew up in it. I mean, a lot of my family is way more phenotypically black and others are not. I felt like it was an interesting question because they were talking about a renaissance in black literature at the same time as the black community is probably in one of the worst positions it's been in a long time. I mean, the, the black community is catching just wreck across the country. I mean, it's just taking losses all over. And I felt that that was an interesting notion of a renaissance in black literature at the same time as the black community was, is, I mean, anyone who reads the newspaper can see what's happening. And I felt like that's one of the things for the future for Latino writers, I felt it was really important to think about that I don't really want to be that separated from my community where the community could be um, being choked to death and yet there's this idea of this renaissance. I felt like it was decontextualized. <coughs> I would have thought it would been interesting to talk about this renaissance in juxtaposition or in the context of what's happening with the community at large. So I guess I always want to like embed 
when I think of my own writing, I want to embed it in the community. There's a, the only anecdote I have is from a, a first year um, writing class uh, where they were teaching Yeats, and there was this image of Yeats, um, it's like the only thing I remember from this class, and it was this image of Yeats. He, would, he lived in a bailey, which was like a tower, I guess, like a stone tower, and he would go up to the top and he would write. That's what I guess he did it by pen, and he would, he would write his shit up top. And he lived near a river, and the river constantly flooded into his bailey. And he would be upstairs writing, just writing incredibly, and downstairs his wife and his children would be bailing the water out of the house. And when I, thought of, when I heard about that conference, I guess that's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about the black community at large, downstairs bailing the water out, just going, damn, this shit's rough. And people gathering together to drink water and to be like, yo, we're having a renaissance. <laughs> and um, I, guess, I guess that's what troubles me. Like, I, I feel that the future, for me, of our writing has to be way more embedded. It has, we have to think about our community more seriously. Like, is our community the thing which gave us our voice, our stories, what we write about? Is it just material? Or are we like an organic extension of it for real? Like for real, like are we really a part of this community that we claim to be a part of? And I think it's one of the things I feel that a lot of writers before us have interrogated very seriously. And I think that that's something that we need to continue interrogating because when I see shit like that, I'm just like, damn, if I earn it up like that, I hope somebody like hits with a car like quick. So that's all I guess I have to say. Thank you. I think I wanna, I'm going to want to ask Miguel Argarin about the whole idea of a Latino renaissance. But before I do, we will hear from our last panelist, Willie Perdomo, who's sitting on the left, uh, to the left of um, Juno. Willie uh, is Puerto Rican. He was born in 1967, and he lives in New York City. A collection of his poetry entitled where a nickel cost a dime was published this year by W.W. Norton. And I think it's about the same thing, Willie, um, writing here in New York. How long have you been writing here in New York? How long have you been a poet? Um, about 10 years, 85, but things started happening like in 95 years. Yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about that, how that, that happened here and why that happened for you? Um, well, you know, I was just asked to uh, come on this panel today and just like hearing everybody talking, a lot of things like going through my mind. Um, sometimes I feel like um, like Latino uh, literature is almost like uh, Black History Month, you know? Um, like they like recognize it uh, like uh, for a month, you know? And, and, and it's, it's, it's a good thing. Like I remember reading P.W. Uh, when Oscar um, Higuelos won the Pulitzer for uh, Mambo Kings, you know, and it was a good time for Latin writers. You better do it now. You better submit your work because if you don't, you know, you're gonna lose. You're gonna miss the train. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and, and that's about it, you know. And that's a sad thing, but and you know, I'm sure it's still happening now. Um, and I'm always wondering, like, I remember going to the bookstores and, and saying, you know, um, I want to find <coughs> books by uh, by Puerto Rican writers, you know. Uh, not necessarily like Latin American writers, because if you weren't writing, um, you know, magical realism like Marquez, then you wasn't getting published at all at some point, you know. Um, but then I started finding stuff like Abraham Rodriguez, who wrote, you know, Spider, um, Spider Town, and uh, 
um, Esmeralda Santiago, who just came out uh, when I was a, a, a Puerto Rican, and um, uh, you know, we're starting to make a little bit more inroads. I guess now I, I, I can I can see that there's a a group uh, of Puerto Rican literature um, that's I guess starting to materialize and, and develop. That I can say, yeah, that belongs to me. That some young Puerto Rican kid, you know, from East Harlem can go to the library and pick something out by a Puerto Rican writer. And it's cool to go and, you know, read something by Ruben and, and Maritza and, 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 and Juno and stuff like that, you know, but at some point you need to, to see um, what's there that, that's me, what, what that reflects me. Um, as far as the poetry is concerned, um, you know, there's this whole thing right now uh, about New Yorican poets, you know, and um, it's kind of wild because like when I went to the cafe, I was I was almost expecting it to be like you know 1970s, like when I got in and Pinero, you know, put this whole school of New Yorkian poets together. But what I found was like everybody was a New Yorkian now, you know. You could be <laughs> like you could be like you know you could be a Jewish Jewish writer from Brooklyn, you know, and you were kicking poems and you New Yorkian, you know what I mean? And, and I was like, damn, you know, that was ours and shit. What happened, man? You know? But wow, and, 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 you know, and that's what happened, you know, but and, and I'm all for people kicking their poetry. I, you know, I don't mind that, but there's a part of my heart that was like, damn, I want to belong to a school of Puerto Rican writers that came up in the 90s, and I know that I was there, you know, and making my mark. But, I mean, I don't mind being a, a, a singular uh, Puerto Rican voice in, in the spectrum, you know what I mean? I don't mind that at all, but I, I would like uh, sort of that collective. Um, and, you know, there's a... Uh, an anthology out now that's, I think, going toward that direction. It's called Boricua. It's an anthology of influential Puerto Rican writers. And I think it's probably the most important uh, collective of Puerto Rican writing since the original uh, New Yorican poetry anthology that Agarena Pinero put together in, in the mid-70s. So, you know, hopefully we're going in that direction. As far as poetry and the spoken word is concerned, um, when the whole resurgence of the spoken word um, came about, like in the early 90s, there were uh, a lot of young African-American and, and Latin writers at the forefront of that movement, you know, and that's why you had sort of this black, you know, uh, renaissance of African-American literature going, and then it, it started to uh, compare it to the beat poets, you know, and um, all these similarities, but um, I mean, overall, you know, I write about my mother's rights and beings, you know what I mean? I think, I think that's important. Um, by the same token, I also think that um, we, a, 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 as uh, Latino writers, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Salvadoran, whatever have you, um, the one thing I like to do is focus on that one detail that sort of speaks for the bigger picture, you know? Uh, so it could be, um, you know, and that's where you get your universality from, uh, you know, to, 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 to you, know, you know, talk on that a bit. but. I think we, we, we need to write about everything and, 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 and anything, you know. I think that's very important. But I also think that uh, it's also important to uh, show people how beautiful we are, you know. Maybe Miguel will address, uh, address for us the question of, uh, of what for me personally, is maybe a misnomer of our Latino, Latina uh, literature renaissance, since you have been uh, 
going at it for some time? Was there a time that it started and then died and now there's a renaissance or did it just continue or are we still working our way to that, to that time to be born? When I was a little boy, <laughs> Dolores, if you don't stop calling me old, we're going to have a problem. Now look, when I was in my teens, I lived uh, at, um, in the Lillianwald Projects at 725 FDR Drive. And on the sixth floor where I lived with my family lived Lofton Mitchell, who was a great African-American writer, Land Beyond the River. So um, as a little boy, I was asked to make the runs to the store for Lofton and Helen when their guests arrived. I didn't know who they were, but Jimmy Baldwin was one of them, I was to learn. Harry Belafonte, boy, was he really pretty. Um, there was a lot of energy in the African-American literary community in the 50s that I happened to be witness to just because I happened to be where I was. It's just that, you know, that incidental and accidental. So that um, people of color, for me, have always had a place in the um, literary pantheon of America. The thing was that uh, um, the money wasn't uh, commensurate with the effort. You know, nowadays, um, it seems to be getting there. I, I, I about Renaissance, in the 1890s, uh, your publisher, Dolores and Nicolás Canelos, has written really brilliantly about it. New York theater was half Spanish, fully Spanish set productions in the 1890s, and thriving in this city. This city has always been a Latin city for me, so that there is nothing except a continuity I see it as something continuous. I think of myself as a 400-year-old Puerto Rican. And I really do see a line of activity in the Latin community that comes right through. That is why I didn't worry when the New Yorican Poets Cafe began to spread its wings and the literary activity of the New Yorican lured the literary activity of the black and of the white and of the Jew didn't seem to me incongruous. Um, and I think that Willie uh, is quite accurate. In 75, the first New Yorican anthology was exclusively Puerto Rican. In 1995, <coughs> it couldn't be. We had um, outgrown the limits of our influence the influence that's coming in was big. And um, I would have been hard put to eliminate uh, Eliza Gallagher's poem about, um, you know, making love to her girlfriend. Or um, Carol Deal's poem, because they grew on that stage 
a generous stage set by Puerto Ricans for the city of New York to exercise its, its will, you know? So I think that uh, we're all right, Willie. We're, you know, alive and well in the Lower East Side. And uh, um, I think that really what we have to be about is the metaphors of the 21st century. What are we going to do about language when language has become uh, something that uh, is no longer um, necessary if you can do your telecommunications um, by viewing your mommy when you're in Manhattan and she's in Queens. Thank you. Anybody can, anyone, I'd, I'd really like to invite the panelists to join in and make any comments they'd like to make uh, at any point. And uh, in a few minutes, we'll open it up to questions from the audience. Um, sure. I, I'd like to um, contradict my friend Miguel. Um, I think that uh, if, you've been, if you've been surfing the internet and getting into chat rooms, you realize that language is still very important in cyberspace. And uh, because it's dialogue, and, and uh, there are poetry rooms, so language is still very important. Um, for, now. for now, well, we don't know mañana, but yeah. que sera, sera. <laughs> uh, what I, I wanted to say now, can I talk about the future now? <laughs> <laughs> well, not so much the future, but the present. I think one of the most important things that have happened in the last few years is that thanks to some uh, brilliant illuminated faculty in many universities. Our work has finally reached the universe of the university. And that has been very big, at least in, in, in my experience. And, and also even in high schools now, now that, that your work is there has opened up a lot of new doors. And uh, for the students it's so important to be able to read this work. And that also at the same time brings some other problems. Uh, some of uh, our Latino literature is in the English department. I know that Anna's work is included in the English department, some universities. But a lot of universities don't. You, so you have <coughs> Latino literature in the Spanish department. And that is such a contradiction. I was teaching at Dartmouth College last year, teaching a course on Latino literature in the Spanish department. And I said, what a contradiction in these uh, English-only times you know, that you told, you learn English. So I learn English, I learn it well enough, I write a play and it's, it's good enough that it's produced and it's good enough that it's published in a book. And then when it gets to university, you have to reverse back into Spanish to teach it to Spanish majors in the university. So a, a whole new set of problems. But I think that um, the opening up of uh, the curriculum to our work has been vital and that is what will also keep it going for the new people on the other side of it. In terms of thinking about the future, I, I was trying to set out uh, a model of a never-expanding community. Um, when Juno mentioned community earlier, I and you know, this is what I was saying earlier about cyclical debates, each generation going through the same thing. I heard my forebears you know, the 60s and 70s generation saying precisely that. What do we do to pay homage to, to uh, advocate for uh, the community from which we spring, which, which gave us our voice? The question at this point, I think, is 
how do you define community and can you really say there is any one community? Um, for me, it's getting more and more difficult. I think there's political junctures, you know, and contexts that give us very specific battles to fight, but more and more in terms of both political and cultural consciousness, it's very difficult to, un to see where one community begins and the next ends and, and, and where they connect or where they don't connect. In Mount Pleasant, you can talk about tensions between Dominican, Salvadoran, and African American. In Los Angeles, you can talk about tensions between, between black and Salvadoran and Mexican. But in both of those barrios, on different coasts, you can also say that hip hop is the universal language of Dominican and African American and Salvadoran and Chicano, you know, and Honduran, <coughs> right? And that graffiti art, and you know, so, and that in a s in th that there is a new youth culture that's been emerging over the last decade at least that seems to point to a much broader sense of community. Um, and so that our demarcations between one community and another uh, become perhaps more and more obsolete. And then just one other point, the whole idea of borders, I was talking to uh, some people at the luncheon today about the efforts uh, recently uh, to uh, publish in, Sp in the Spanish language on this side of the border, which I find a fascinating enterprise and a visionary one. Uh, there are some questions as to which audience, you know, the Spanish language publishers uh, on this side of the border are going to target. Uh, before, nobody thought of uh, printing in the Spanish language because it was assumed that uh, the immigrants, they're going to learn English anyway, and besides, they don't read, they're illiterate. Um, but of course, there is a there's 36 million Latinos uh, I would be willing to wager half of them are at least Spanish conversant, if not Spanish dominant. And for the first time in recorded history, the plurality of immigrants in California are the, the first generation now. In other words, there's more Mexicanos, more Salvadoreños in California than there are Chicanos. What does that mean? That means the critical mass culturally and linguistically has gone south. The south is the future. I'm not saying we're all gonna end up speaking Spanish. What I'm saying is that we're evolving and that to say, here's English, here's Spanish, here's the north, here's the south, here's Protestant, here's Catholic, you know, here's gay, here's straight, and woman. Those binary models aren't gonna function in the 21st century. I think we need a new language that's much more polyphonic. You know, Ruben, I, I want to ask, uh, ask you now that you're mentioning that, uh, because people do ask us, uh, you know, one of the things is the quickly um, increasing demographics of Latinos and Spanish-speaking people uh, that are very visible in, in throughout this country. People ask me about that, but we, be we belong to a uh, profession that uh, in the 21st century may become obsolete, which is writing. And so one of the things Right. I mean, I, th I think there's, I think there's, I, th I think there's, I think, I think it's more a class issue than it is uh, an educational or cultural issue. To be perfectly honest, because the, t for example, in Latin America, the literature that's universally available, and it, which is because it's cheapest, is the fotonovela. Everyone has one peso for the novela. You know, 
I'm not here to say whether it's great literature or whether it's not literature at all. It's popular literature, let's say. Mm -hmm. But on the subway in Mexico City, everyone's got a fotonovela, you know? And in Mexico City, at any kiosk, you can buy Juan Rulfo or Garcia Marquez. You know, there must be demand for this, or those books wouldn't be at those kiosks. Sure. So, so the, mo the the growing numbers are those primarily people who would buy books, read books. Do they promote that in their f in their homes? Because that's very important for us, uh, yeah. obviously, for us as writers. And even though most of LA, m you know, may be of Latino background, and many are conversant in, in Spanish, would they be people that would be buying buying our buying our novels, going to see our plays? Uh, reading our, our essays, our thoughts. Do you, do you think that, that Absolutely. is Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I don't think the, the, the question is any different in the Latino community or in Latin America than it is in any community that's any other ethnicity or, or, or race. Um, if we're say, you know, who reads uh, William Carlos Williams and who goes to see, who goes to see uh, Die Hard? Uh, do these audiences ever intersect? You know, think about it and think about it in terms of, well, how do Latinos deal with that? How do blacks deal with that? I think there's kind of like a universal here, you know. Uh, I think in terms of Latinos in particular, that the access to literature is more limited just by sheer economics and in some cases sheer levels of literacy. But wherever I see, I mean, I've taught in, you know, East LA for the last 10 years and when it's available, it's gobbled up, you know? So I, oh. no, I meant to say that I think that all communities um, provide them with, with what they want to read, and also if it's marketed properly. And that brings me some, to something that you were saying about um, giving back to the community, and which I sort of interpreted also as politicizing our work. And I want to get away from that. I'm, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here because, yes, my work is political. But, you know, ideally, um, I don't want to be held to that higher purpose of, you know, um, having a responsibility. Yes, okay, I, I personally I feel one, but still, what if I just want to write romances or telenovelas or, you know, science fiction? Do I have to write some political or, you know, um, deal with conflict within this culture? Why can't I be a writer or, you know, I mean, we read all sorts of things as a Latino community. Why can't I fulfill all those roles or any of those roles? So I just wanted to throw that out I'm there. actually, it's sort of interesting because I think that, uh, I mean, the, I feel like the concept of community is perhaps, and it has never been any different, one of the most fluid, I mean, it is an extremely fluid thing. We are all, we're all transgressors. There's not a single one of us here who isn't a transgressor in their community, whichever they belong mm -hmm. to. I think that's, I recognize that from the beginning. But what I think I'm interested in is not holding anyone to um, a political standard. I think that uh, I can write fucking, I'll write cookbooks and fuck you. Like, that's what I'll do. But like, cookbooks, you know, I mean, e every single thing is political. What I'm actually interested is the interface between, like, we all know it's true. Like, we are considered, whether we are writers, whether we're intellectuals, whether we're editors, we are all considered conduits into our communities. We can pretend all we want that we're not, but we are. And I think what is to be interrogated is not that we're spokespeople. I don't think, you know, anyone takes my experience as Dominican as typical, you know, you're shit out of luck. But like, we're interpreted as, you know, this way that people can 
read us, people can see us, people can talk to us. I think what needs to be, I feel like, interrogated, it's not what we give back to the community. I think that is an old argument, and it's seen before. But like what the young kids are doing these days, like you're talking about the, you know, the youth. When I see my little brother, is they're thinking about what does it mean to be considered somebody who can be turned to to be like, okay, describe the community or talk to the community. Like, what does that mean? Political decisions are made on this matter. Like, you don't need to go very far. Like, you can even go to old references like Pearl S. Buck's book. I mean, foreign policy was made on that book. Foreign policy that, like, shaped the face of China and Asia on a fucking book that was popular literature. And I think that that's what I'm interested in. It's not like that we need to write political things, but as writers, and I think it's not anything that we each need to hold each other to. I actually call for like, it's like, a, you know, like Chaz said, the new man, the new woman, like to personally interrogate what this means to us as people. And I think we all do it. I think people have been doing it since before that. I felt like actually it's a continuation that we need to keep doing. Because I think it's very important that we not find ourselves writing cookbooks and then they're using the cookbooks in, you know, prisons. Like, what does that mean? How do we work that out? How do we hammer this? Like, I mean, um, Ruben, you said something that was actually really beautiful when we were talking at the pen. It actually like, showed an incredible amount of humility when you were like talking about which are the good things to have, I believe. Like, when you were talking about like how you stepped away from a program because you felt that you were being, that your image was being controlled in a way. And I think that that's, a, that's the sort of foresight that's really, when you said that, it really touched me in a way that was interesting, that you had the recognition to say, it's not just me, like, I can be shaped by other forces. Like, no force of will will keep me from being appropriated. Like, certain decisions will. But I, I found that to be really a moment, I don't know, I thought it was like a pure moment, if they can think of it. Um, just a couple things, right? Um, as far as like the whole the, the whole political thing, me being a, a, a young Puerto Rican male who's often mistaken for being a young African male, um, which I don't mind because it's all you know. <laughs> when you get down to it, it's black and white sometimes, you know. And you could be from Jamaica, but you're still black and shit, right? They're just you know, the, the Jamaican people be like you people, and they'll be talking about black Americans and shit, you know. And, I don't know why that happens anyway, but <laughs> uh, the thing is, me uh, writing uh, a book of poems uh, that's published or, or just writing poems, something like that, that's inherently a, a political act in, in, in itself, uh, which I've learned um, early. And so, I mean, I don't, and I don't also want to be misrepresented here when, uh, I, you know, when Miguel tells me that, you know, it's not to worry, because, I mean, I don't worry. I think, you know, things are, um, it's cool that everybody, is doing their thing on the New Eureka stage, man, because that gave props and it gave, uh, you know, people move from being on that stage to bigger and better things, you know, and, and I'm, I'm proof of that right now. But also when we go into that future 20 years down the line, personally, it's important for me, for that young brother or sister to, to look back, say, damn, Willie, he, you know, he represented uh, when he was writing back in the day, you know, so. I don't, definitely don't want to be misrepresenting that. I think it's all good for people to be, you know, writing their poems from whatever color, religion, sex, or whatever. But uh, I also think it's very important for you to represent 
and and as the kids say in, the, in my hood, you know, you gotta keep it real sometimes, you know. And, <laughs> and I could dig that. I could really dig that, you know. So. In 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 um. I guess that I I'm jaded. You see, I I I I listen to all these voices on the first Wednesday of every month. The New Eureka Post Cafe is filled with 250. 20 something, late teens something, black and Puerto Rican uh, 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 voices. So I just sit back and I take a woman like Eileen Reyes in, you know, shocking, uh, the range of her voice. Um, the, um, um, the, thing, the thing is that we have to um, remember to continue um, being without uh, all of this uh, mission, a sense of mission, you know. Um, uh, I, I, I don't fear that I'm going to forget that I'm Puerto Rican. I, I, I don't fear it. And judging from the voices I hear um, that are in their early 20s, um, they're becoming very clear about being Afro-Ricans, you know, being... Um, being in a world where black and white um, doesn't really um, d distinguish m or make fine distinctions between un negro y un trigueño, you know. They, you know your poem said it, well, a nigger Rican blues, you know. Um, I, 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 I feel that the real deal is where are we going in the 21st century and um, what I find is happening is that uh, the young black and Latino voices that come to the New Eurekan on those special nights to talk and, 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 and vent, are, they're, they're talking about serious um, roles that they will be playing in the future of this, 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 this literary world and this game, you know. Eileen Reyes sees herself in the context of a world where her voice will be center mainstream. And that's amazing to me. And I enjoy it. Dolores, let's hear uh, what you have something you want to say. Then we're going to open it up to yes. questions from the audience. As someone who writes about my mother's rice and beans, <laughs> that without that I wouldn't be here either. I am the first one to agree that Latino writers should write and could write about anything. But the fact is that we are here today, and Penn has does this uh, panel, and many uh, other events like this that are happening constantly. It's not because there are a hundred Latinos writing science fiction, or horoscopes, or romance, or cookbooks. Although cookbook writers are doing very well, I must say. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm planning one too. <laughs> but I believe what Junot has said very well, that connection back to the community, that reflecting that experience, and even those young people over there at the Port New York and Ports Cafe, I've met some of those new Latinos at, at colleges and universities they still want to know about their mothers and grandmothers' rice and beans. And it's not going to change. There comes a moment that no matter what voice they speak with or what subject they decide to deal with, they want to know about that. 
and it's universal that we all want to have our stories. Um, you know, we do. We want to have our stories. I have lots of stories. So the right to dreams is just our story. Now, the context that our story is going to be put in is the issue, no? About There is still one frontier that is really still very tough to cross, and that's television. Uh, Latinos, practically, we don't exist on television. I have written for television, but there are frontiers I won't cross. I'm constantly about to write for series about Latinos, and I have said no to many of them, because they're not my story. Again, I make heroes. I will refuse to write, although it pays very well to write about for a show that shows Latinos as caricatures that I, I, I won't cross. That's it. Okay, let's... Um, We're going to open it up to some questions. If you have a question, you can uh, raise your hand. I don't know if the mic works, but you, I think uh, it worked well just to stand up and yes. I, you know, I appreciate w what you're saying about, you know, the spirituality, but, I mean, to build a pyramid, you need a tremendous amount of technology. Right. And the Mayans had the zero, you know, the concept of the zero before the West did. So if there, if it, if it, if it looks like certain cultures today are technologically, what do you want to say, disadvantaged, whatever, you know what I'm saying? It's spiritually, <laughs> or others that are spiritually vacant, or uh, whichever way you want to look at it. It's it's because you know history takes different, you know, bericuetos pues, you know, desviaciones, wrong turns. But I can tell you this: that on 
uh, on the internet in digital photography, the leading digital photographer in the world is Pedro Mayer, a Mexico City photographer, universally recognized as one of the pioneers of digitalizing the photographic process and, uh, and bringing it to the internet, you know? Chicanos are on the web, Puerto Ricanos are on the web. Um, I think we're actually moving pretty fast, yes. you know, these days. Um, I think we need to move faster because it's moving, you know, although we're getting up to speed with what's going on, uh, this thing is moving even faster than we are. But I, I don't think it's that we're, because we're spiritually developed, we're technologically disadvantaged, you know, uh, one doesn't lead to the other. Um, I, and I think this, this goes back to what I'm saying about mestizaje. I mean, we, we, we have the capacity for both, and you can put technology at the service of our spirituality. You know what I'm saying? We don't, we don't really know, we don't really know all that for sure. You know, one of the reasons for that civilizations have gone down, went down because they in fact were becoming a hierarchy and were becoming very militant. We always think of the Mayans as being very peaceful and very spiritually evolved, but we do know that there was, they were, had become very militant also in all kinds of other things that came into play. So I think we really have to look at it in terms of our time and history and what what we what we can apply to that they weren't able to deal with the um, geography with the with the growing back of the jungle now we're knocking, now we're knocking the jungle down so there's so many different things it's very hard to to think of it as a utopic time without really under, understanding all the complexities of why that civilization went under right and also that uh, spirituality and technology is not compatible i don't believe so there is a line from Joseph Campbell, who's written about myth, um, about computers that I love. I said, have you ever, he said, have you ever looked inside a computer? It is full of little angels. And it's true, because so much that you can do with it. And in my play Botanica, I used the, the computer as a, a, a contemporary symbol of La Ceiba, that was sacred tree, where you bury important things, valuable things. Information is important. And in our oral traditions, this technology enables us to save all this valuable Which is what's great about the spoken word thing, using, you know, digital technology, the CD that you, we listen to spoken word on, you know, and rap, the way, you know, technology, the way, you know, rappers and hip-hop artists and graffiti artists have put, you know, technology of the latest and most up-to-date, you know, uh, developments at the service of community ideals that you're talking about and not putting the I above the we. So I, th I, think we're doing, I think we're doing okay, actually. I think we're moving really fast with this. Another question? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can see you. Thank you. 
belong to the community, and we have multiple high schools, and we go to the hospital. And now you have the other side, are people who want to tell a story. And we have made recordings about them, and we bring the community to leadership. And we find very good people who want to tell their stories. And we, we are only working now two years in San Francisco, in Washington, and, and the Bronx. We are now doing a, a writer's conference. I did a workshop in Japan. So anybody wants to write and tell a story, I'm welcome to uh, do that. But that is part of being, as you say, a community. We are using the same language. And so now the song is going to be only this year and next year we make music for next year. But that is the progression Thank you. Otra pregunta? Right here. Are you, uh, excuse me, are you talking about it doesn't show in the literature or that they're actually not moving around? Are you talking about U.S. Latino writers? <laughs> I, oh, okay. Yeah, 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 we're talking about you. Did you know that uh, U.S. Latino writers, some of them are being translated in 10 languages and traveled all over the world. And they are actually sold sometimes very exclusively in the U.S. in the But you mean in the, yeah, li in the literature, in the he stories? Mean, she mean, he, he's... I think that's there. I think perhaps in the early work that wasn't so, in 20 years ago or so, that wasn't so common. In my own case, my novels have always dealt with uh, people. Uh, the, the primary character is always a brown woman who looks a lot like me. Um, <laughs> but she's surrounded by all kinds of, uh, you know, all kinds of people. I was born and raised in Chicago, and of course that's a very rich, multi-ethnic city, so I learned a lot about the world being in Chicago. But I think we can have lots and lots of examples. That, and, it's, and so it's, it was a kind of a, uh, of, a, uh, of a stereotype that we had placed on us that we didn't have those experiences, that we were not reading Dostoevsky even if we didn't go to college, that we, didn't, we weren't influenced by Anais Nin or we didn't know uh, of, uh, Faulkner or, or we didn't have African-American uh, friends or influences, or we didn't um, uh, have uh, uh, Jewish uh, uh, neighbors. So, but that has been there. Uh, just the way any kind of literature, usu usually the universal, the central eye, is whoever you are. 
Right. That's who I am when I write. The local is universal, and that's very powerful. Because a good story w uh, about people, no matter if it's in the little town in El Paso, has a, a resonance in the Netherlands, where they're very interested in what we do, and in I Italy, France, sp Spain, everywhere. There's I have some friends from uh, Spain here, and they, they're here because they're very interested. They th in Madrid, they talk about this, about uh, the Latino literature. In Europe, they're also interested because Europe uh, is becoming, many countries are beginning to have multicultural societies too, and they ab absolutely have no idea what to do about that. And somehow, the United States is some sort of laboratory where we have <laughs> dealt with it just a little longer, now that they, this has been solved here either. Not that we resolved anything. Not at all. There was a question way back be behind, behind you, Vanilla. We address the issue of vanity presses uh, years ago in the 60s when um, we realized that to have real impact on the society, a local small press would find it hard to get you out. You know, and Luis Reyes Rivera is one of the saints of getting the voices that w have not pushed through the uh, mainstream uh, publishers out. You know, and he's an extraordinary um, symbol for that. But. If the New Eurekan Poets Anthology in 75 had been published by a small press, the impact that it's made and the room it made for a lot of us uh, to move on, uh, to enter television, I see, I wasn't afraid, I like money. So, <laughs> I so, yes, I say, so like uh, Miguel Pinero and I uh, created uh, cowboy and Indian stories about, you know, the barrio, for Kojak and Beretta, you know, but they pay well, <laughs> you know. So like, um, uh, I, I, and I believe that, for example, the kind of recognition that the New Eurekan uh, poet has now on the island of Puerto Rico would not be there had we not been published by a mainstream publisher. Maybe it's it is unfortunate to have to say that, but it is true. If the University of Puerto Rico had been wise enough to publish us, it w we would not have the kind of cachet or respect that we received. I mean, the Puerto Rican intelligentsia did not read me in Spanish or English. They read me in French translations brought back from Paris. That's how I got known on the island, you know. And about your question, uh, we are now entering a, a sphere where um, our work is going into Japanese and into Chinese, let alone 
a myriad of, of, of European terms. So that I think our stories are going. Um, it may not be to our satisfaction, but um, they're out there. In terms of influences or oh, si, si, claro. I mean, sh I should I answer this in Spanish or English? I mean, talking about Marquez, um, for years I never showed anybody my work because I, I, I thought I was writing crazy things. And when I was in college, a friend of mine, I couldn't sleep all night, and a roommate said, you know, read 100 years of solitude, it'll put you to sleep immediately. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I was up all night. I, did, I missed my first classes. I finished that book in a night, in a day. Um, and I thought, this man is crazy. Carpets fly, you know, um, people fly up to heaven. And he got the Nobel Prize, and I thought it was crazy. So yes, I mean, what I'm saying is that he definitely influenced my work. I mean, reading him, I thought that it doesn't matter if what kind of crazy things I write, because he was the first person I read who, who had that magic realism. So yes, we are influenced. You know, not just Marquez, but Fuentes and all different other Latin American writers. I think the only problem with that is that now, if you have a Spanish surname, you have to come from the Garcia Marquez School of Writing. It has to be magical realism, no matter what the story is really about. So that's the only problem is that he has, who hasn't he influenced who writes fiction, regardless of uh, race and ethnicity? But if you happen to have a Spanish surname, even though you might be from the Bronx, you're obviously from that, from that term. So there's that problem, I think, also. But there are many, many other writers in Latin America that, are, that don't write magical realism that we have been reading, I'm sure, and we're influenced by because of the fact that there are so many com uh, commonalities, at least in my case, that I felt identified with that I didn't feel identified with uh, being uh, born and raised in uh, North America. So just really briefly, there's, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of back and forth communication on, on the West Coast. Um, both uh, with Mexico and Central America since, since the 60s. Um, Central American revolutionary poetry of the 70s, 60s and 70s, fed the Chicano fired up political writing of the 60s and 70s. Alejandro Murguía, uh, Chicano from San Francisco, ended up becoming a Sandinista uh, combatant as well as poet. And, and Roberto Vargas. Um, Roque Dalton, Central American great poet, Otorne Castillo, all made their way, you know, in little pamphlets and collections uh, to, to our hands in LA and San Francisco and other parts east. Um, and today, there's a tremendous amount of communication on the west coast between Chicano and Mexicano, and that was not always the case. There was a tremendous wall between the two for many, many years, promoted, I might add, 
both by the Mexican government as well as the United States. You know, it was in both their interests to uh, keep a wall between them uh, and keep xenophobia and nationalism alive so that, you know, the Mexicans would just hate, you know, everybody on the other side and, 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 and everybody on this side would see just dirty Mexicans. But today, uh, I think uh, the literature and the communication between uh, artists and writers on both sides of the border is mirroring the communication crossing borders exemplified by the immigrants, those that we call illegals. Um, you know, they've, uh, yes, you can call it an invasion, you know, and thank God, you know. This invasion is a transfusion that will save America from its, you know, cultural death. That's where I see the future. Uh, and, uh, and I think the artists and writers are catching up to that tremendous and frenetic movement of people and commerce and information across the borders that separate us. Anna? Anna? Yeah. If I may, I just want to yeah. address the, the young brother's question yeah. about the uh, self-publishing and stuff. Um, I, it's cool. I admire people who, uh, who, you know, who go for self and, and they're sort of self-empowered and, and, and they do their own thing if they can't get published. But sometimes things, the way things work is funny. It's like I'll give you an exchange of dialogue, right? It says, well, um, so yeah, you a poet? Yeah, uh-huh. Um, got your book published? You say, yeah, yeah, what's it called? Say, uh, where nickel costs a dime, right? Now, in this world, says, if you say, who published it? Says, um, if you go, well, West Bubblegum Press, you know, did it. Uh, actually, I did it myself. Says, in the bookstore, I said, well, you know, it's here and there, you know, and lose interest real quick, right? We go through the same dialogue again. Says, uh, what's the name of your book? Say, well, nickel costs a dime. Say, yeah, who published it? Say, Norton. <gasps> really? Wow, boom, you know, and the whole thing just changes, you know, just because of who published it, what published it, and, and, and how things get done like that. And you have more get access to it. So that's, you know, it's kind of crazy that way, man. Wow. I just want to say, look, our connection with uh, the Caribbean and south of the, uh, 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 south of the border is, 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 is real. And we are um, readers. But our experience as Latinos in North America is very special. And I see myself as a North American Latino, born in the Caribbean, and that is a quality and, 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 and an experience that is not interchangeable. You know, it's a, I am not capable of, since I was born in Puerto Rico, but I am no longer island bound. You know, uh, I mean, being in North America, is an enormous experience, and um, it comes to you um, in very <laughs> varied ways. And uh, uh, I find myself in, in my travels into Central and South America um, realizing the difference between these Latino men and women and how I see and perceive the world. May I just talk a little bit about influence? Um, being a playwright, of course, my influences are Luis Valdez and Rogers and Hammerstein. Because <laughs> I love musicals and I've written a couple of them. But having said that, I mean, Luis Valdez and Teatro Campesino was very influential. I began in community theater, street theater in the Lower East Side. But he got it from Cuba, which is El Teatro del Escambray that brought theater to campesinos in the countryside. So there's my Latino influence. Vamos a tomar una pregunta más. One, one more question this evening, then we're going to have to uh, wrap it up. 
this young lady had her view. See. Can you project? Let's 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 go. On, uh, she wants. Let's let's everybody answer very quickly. How um, the, the whole question of labeling and whether we feel comfortable being labeled as Latinos or would we label ourselves that way, or do we use the term Hispanic? Do we feel comfortable with that? So just go quickly, maybe. Um, see what the answers are. You know, I used to get so mad every time I used to go to the major bookstores and see like you know Latin American literature, not one book by a Puerto Rican in that Latin American section. You know, you would have to go somewhere else. So. Um, you know, yeah, you want to call me like you know, Latino, cool. You can call me black, cool. You know, and and but say, oh, that's a tipo in Boricua. You know, and that's cool too. You know, um, I could go for that. But I mean, you know, when you check off, you can't be like we have Hispanic slash Latino, and then it says other. You'd be like Puerto Rican, so, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you can't do that. You know what I mean? So I do. But I hear you. So yeah. I guess I'm gonna start doing that then. So. That's like one of those questions, because like I think you could ask it to like the most conservative panel in the world, and like nobody ever will say, I love being labeled. <laughs> You'll never get a single person, even people who are like, you know, people who are like, we're Spanish American. You know, like you'll never get anyone to do that. And I feel like for my sake, I always think, I think Willie's got a point. For me, it was community wise. Like I grew up really, in many ways, very isolated. And it wasn't until I got away from my state school that I went, the first time I met like light-skinned Latin American elites. <laughs> and when I met them, I realized I was just like, you know, I have nothing in common with you. And it was like a startling realization because I always assumed everyone with a Z in their name, I'd be like cool with, you know what I'm saying? And for me, for me, True, man. it was wild. Like, and it was only a recent experience, and it was really, I mean, I felt it was like a traumatizing moment to realize how class and all these other things, I mean, Ruben's been talking about it, about class, like how these things intersect. So I always saw myself when people asked me my community, they would be like, Dominican was the operative word. And Latino's the word I use when my Boricua brothers are around, because we have a lot in common, and you know, people from the Antilles and African Americans are around. I mean, I'll use the Latino word because I know Latino pisses off conservative Hispanics. So it's like <laughs> a good thing. It's like, for me, it's, you know, utility. I think all identity is context driven. And I think you know that, so you'd be playing the game over there. <laughs> Does anyone else want to address this? Do you feel differently? Anyone that has different people? Well, uh, I always say stick and stones can break my bone. I don't know how it follows, but I mean, you can call me whatever. I feel comfortable with Latino, and it depends where you are. I mean, I, I was in Cuba two years ago. They did one of my plays there, and I was not a Cuban-American or a Latina. I was a Cuban who lived outside of Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> so 
uh, I think we need a name for all of us to be called something. I'm, I'm, I, I, because I'm older, <laughs> I'm on this side of the table. Right I've gone through these arguments for so long, I really don't want to talk about it anymore. Yeah, right. Um, the African-American, let's learn from the African-American. He's been a Negro, he's been black, he's been African-American. Um, just colored, just um, a name identifies a, a, a thing. I don't like Hispanic because I don't think of myself as being anyone's panic. <laughs> uh, but um, um, New Yorican was not my idea. It was the Islander who called me New Yorican um, uh, as a put down. So when I got the contract from Moro, I said, ah, it's not Puerto Rican words and feeling, it's New Yorican. And that changed that radically from a put down to something that uh, is emblematic of uh, a North American Latino effort. Thank <laughs> you. 